My fellow Americans, welcome to The Celluloid President, the podcast about American presidents on film. Today, we're discussing the movie JFK, in which Oliver Stone seeks to explain how the military-industrial complex killed our 35th president. I'm Gary Holmes, and joining me today via Zoom from California is Jim Robinson, who could give us a false name but won't. Uh, let's just call him X, Jim. How are you doing in a world where white is black and black is white? Well, Gary, if I told you my real name, I'd have to arrange a little triangulation of fire for you to drive through. <laughs> and then I'd have to organize a Robinson commission to write 26 volumes to prove that I fired all three guns simultaneously. So let's just make it easy. Just call me old JR. Just old like JR. Dallas. Okay. Well, that sounds great. You know, uh, Jim, usually we don't manage to be as timely with our podcast, but uh, we were strategic uh, with JFK. Uh, this November 22nd will be the 60th anniversary of the assassination. And we thought we'd take a stab at being relevant for once. So we were in the fourth grade when President Kennedy was assassinated. And if any of our loyal listeners are dying to hear what our memories were, when, where we were and how we reacted on the day of, on that day, I'd refer them to our podcast on PT 109. But um, let's begin today with just some blue sky ruminations on why this was such a terrible event for the country. So, Jim, can you give us what? your half-baked sociopolitical views on how this event did or didn't change history? Well, <laughs> well, I do think it was a genuine inflection point in American history, with the exception of civil rights in the South, uh, the upheavals, dissension, and massive cultural shifts and breakdowns that we associate with the 60s hadn't really started to appear yet. Our involvement in Vietnam was still in its infancy. To me and many others, the quote-unquote 60s did not start on January 1, 1960, but started on November 22, 1963. And there was also the fact that the assassination was so sudden so brutal, so shocking. And that surely added to the impact, as did the incredible contrast, frankly, between the youth and style of JFK and poor LBJ. And I believe all that without necessarily subscribing to the idea that all would have been sweetness and light if only JFK had lived. We can speculate about how he might have handled Vietnam and other challenges in the 60s, but we can't really know. How about you? Yeah, I mean, my thinking is based on the assumption that uh, he would have run against Goldwater and been reelected for a second term, but with not the same landslide and mandate that LBJ had. So in terms of policy, I think the Vietnam War would have ended up in the same place, which is completely contrary with, all, with what Oliver Stone thinks. But uh, we would not have had such sweeping civil rights legislation um, and there would have been no great society overreach. But the great unknown is whether the cultural changes of the 60s would have happened. 
to some extent, the rejection of the 50s cultural norms was driven by a huge demographic bulge that was the baby boom. But would American youth culture have really been so viciously anti-establishment if our cool young president hadn't been replaced by a Colonel Corn Pone and his lying government? It's This is unknowable, but um, fun to speculate, at least. Well, remember the... the slogan of some people of the youth and the counterculture was never trust anyone over 30. Yeah. So JFK would have been 50 or pushing 50 in his second term. Um, I think that's a lot to lay on a president that a whole cultural revolution wouldn't have happened. But it's interesting to speculate about. On Vietnam, I'm not sure I agree with you that Kennedy would have piled on the morass in the same way that LBJ did, not out of any big virtue. But remember, his political goal would have been to prepare the way for Bobby's presidency. And I think he would have been a lot more pragmatic about cutting and running, frankly, on Vietnam. You really think he would have, Kennedy would have ended up with 550,000 U.S. troops there? Yeah, I think he, um, I don't think any of these guys wanted to be the person, the president that lost Vietnam in the same way that uh, no one wanted to be the president that lost China. This whole idea that he was just waiting until the 64 election to pull back. I don't I don't know if I buy that. Yeah. Well, as we said, it's it's fun to speculate. And I I just urge caution to everybody because we can't really know. And some people who think that, you know, everything would have gone great in the country and in the culture, but for one man not being there, I think is is pretty facile. Anyway, before we get to the movie itself, though, I want to remind uh, you, Jim, that uh, you and I visited Dealey Plaza together back in 1984 when we were both in Dallas for the uh, Republican National Convention. That was the year that uh, Ronald Reagan was reelected. Uh, I was working for the reelection campaign and you were there with Governor George Duke Mage and and you requisitioned one of the governor's vans and we drove around the city and got out and walked around Dealey Plaza. You remember that? Oh, yeah, I, I remember it very well. I remember we had two overriding priorities. Yeah. To go to Dealey Plaza and then to go to South Fork <laughs> Ranch. And, you know, they were both equally important, of course, uh, to, <laughs> to us at the time. But I do remember it. And Gary, actually, I went, I went back there since and they had opened this sixth floor of the Texas Book Depository as a kind of shrine and museum. And I'm telling you, that was really eerie to go up there. You could walk right, almost right up to the window where supposedly Lee Harvey Oswald fired the only three shots. And um, it just you know, chills up the spine. Um, my number one reaction though, to both visits, speaking of how history turns, was looking from Dealey Plaza to the triple underpass where the freeway was, where JFK would then head over to go make a speech, and how close he was to getting away. It was just several seconds of driving, and there would have been no assassination. That's what came through to me most. And what were your reactions? 
Yeah, um, it's just always weird when you go someplace where you've uh, you've seen so much of it on TV um, and pictures. Uh, things seemed closer um, than I expected. I, I, being on the ground, it was hard to envision it. So I would imagine being up in the in the the book depository. What is it called? The, the book, Texas School Book Depository. De, book Depository, yeah. That I imagine uh, that would give you a very important perspective. Well, I have to admit that going up to the sixth floor of the depository and looking out the windows um, did show me that the shot was more doable than I had thought. Okay. In other words, it was not hugely far away from where the car came. Yeah. So I think that's, if people see that, they might think, you know, well, maybe Oswald didn't have to be the best marksman in the world to do that shot. But I'd recommend it. I'd recommend a visit to anybody. Okay. Um, I actually had not. Of their I, views. I didn't know about this until until I was researching the movie, and um, and then you mentioned it. So I, I you, why did you ever tell me you were there before? Why am I finding I this out now? I can't remember. Anyway. All right. All right. Well, tell us about the movie. Let's talk about the movie itself. What is we know it's about the assassination, but more specifically, what's it about? Well, it is directed and co-written by Oliver Stone. The film was released in 1991. It's really a crime th crime thriller. And it tells the story of how New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison became convinced over time that there was more, much more to the Kennedy assassination than a chance act by a lone gunman. Oswald had spent the summer before the assassination in New Orleans. And so Garrison and a small team of investigators and lawyers explored his activities and his associates, went into their backgrounds and concluded that there was indeed a conspiracy to kill the president. To crack open the conspiracy, Garrison brought the first and only criminal prosecution ever conducted for the JFK assassination against New Orleans businessman and civic leader Clay Shaw. Shaw's trial and the film conclude in a quick acquittal, but with Garrison portrayed as something of a noble loser, risking everything to find the truth. Let me add that the film is noteworthy for the amazing plethora of stars assembled to play big and small roles. Kevin Costner stars as Garrison. His castmates include Sissy Spacek, Joe Pesci, Tommy Lee Jones, Walter Matthau, Ed Asner, Jack Lemmon, Gary Oldman, John Candy, Kevin Bacon, Donald Sutherland, Martin Sheen as the narrator, and even the real Jim Garrison, playing ironically Chief Justice Earl Warren in a cameo role. The film is rated R due to, due to a lot of bad language, a lot of smoking, and graphic violence, including controversially actual autopsy photos of the dead president and repeated close-up showings of the Subruder film during the fatal headshot. And on that pleasant note, back to you, Gary. <laughs> well, uh, JFK is one of the biggest hits we've discussed so far. Domestic box office of $70 million, which rose to $205 million when international ticket sales were included. And that's the equivalent of $460 million today. So it was the 17th largest box office result for 1991. Uh, the biggest movie that year was Beauty and the Beast with 146 million domestic gross, followed by Terminator 2, Robin Hood, 
Prince of Thieves, which was another Kevin Costner movie, by the way, uh, Silence of the Lamb, and City Slickers. On a global basis, this is the most popular movie we've discussed so far. Um, if you just look at the U.S. market, though, our most popular movie so far is uh, Steven Spielberg's uh, Lincoln. Critical reception was mixed, mostly because of the premise. It was mostly praised for its technical expertise. It received Oscars for Best Cinematography and Best Film Editing, and was also nominated uh, for six more. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor, Best Music, and Best Adapted Screenplay. Um, big winner that year, of course, was Silence of the Lambs, which um, pretty much swept the Oscars. Uh, this was easily uh, the most controversial movie of 1991. Uh, it's also the source of one of the most famous Seinfeld episodes, The Boyfriend, in which Kramer and Newman claim that the Mets' first baseman, Keith Hernandez, spit at, on them after a game. Uh, in response, Jerry Seinfeld debunks the single spitter claim, mimicking Kevin Costner's scene in the movie in which he tries to demonstrate that JFK and John Connolly could not have been hit by the same bullet. Uh, Seinfeld mockingly calls the expectorant a magic loogie that changed direction, <laughs> uh, changed direction between hitting uh, Kramer and, and Newman. And in the end, it turns out that Mets pitcher Sam McDowell, not Keith Hernandez, was the one that spit on them from the grassy knoll. Um, now, I've seen this episode a half a dozen times, and what I did not know until last week and what makes this even more hilarious is that Wayne Knight, who plays Newman, was cast as a member of Jim Garrison's staff and plays the same role as John Connolly's stand-in in both the movie and the TV show. Well, Gary, I mean, as we go deeper into the movie, I think we have to put a few cards on the table. Anyone's views about this film are going to be unavoidably colored by their particular views about the assassination. And everybody's got an opinion including, I'm sure, you and I. Um, I happen to think the film can be enjoyed on purely the crime thriller level and without um, worrying about whether it's plausible or not in the assassination. But we, we ought to do a little disclaimer and disclosure here. And we've promised each other not to go down the assassination theory rabbit hole and instead focus on the movie, its quality, its politics, its influence and the use of and abuse of history and whether it can be enjoyed as entertainment and regardless of one's particular theory about the killing. So we're each gonna, here's, here's, a, here's a little contest. We're each going to grant each other up to just one minute apiece to explain the assassination perspective we bring to this discussion. So Gary, the clock is ticking. You're up first. Okay. Well, I subscribe to the official version that Oswald acted alone, that he was a communist sympathizer uh, who'd already attempted to kill a right-wing former general, Edward Walker. Basically, I don't believe that massive conspiracies of this scale can be kept secret for 60 years. I was greatly influenced by the Case Closed book, um, or the book called Case Closed by Gerald Posner which says there was no conspiracy. I went back I went back and reread a couple of chapters of the book to clear my head after watching this movie. Because uh, I, I, you know, I hadn't been w walking around with like an encyclopedia of assassination facts and couldn't exactly remember why I thought the case was closed. Um, and after reading those chapters, I was reconvinced all over again. Okay, now, <clears throat> fair enough, Gary. 
And the most recent poll I've seen, Rasmussen, this past summer, found that just 38% of Americans believe the official government theory that Oswald acted alone. So congratulations on being part of the 38%. The rest are divided between those who believe there was a conspiracy and those who are unsure. Count me in the unsure category. Very unusual position for me. I agree with the conclusion of the House Select Committee on Assassinations in 1976 that said there probably was a conspiracy, but who and how many and for what reason, I don't know. I think it's important to consider when you look at the range of possibilities that Oswald could have been the lone gunman and still been part of a conspiracy. There were no need to prove multiple shooters. It's also pretty likely to me that there could have been a cover-up and a whitewash without a conspiracy. The CIA, the FBI, Secret Service, all had plenty to hide. Mistakes and oversights that cost the president his life and very likely prior relationships with Lee Harvey Oswald. So that's where I'm, Gary. Um, I'll leave it to you to be the archetypal establishmentarian. Well, of course, I'm Mr. Mr. Establishment, Mr. Wasp, Mr. Protestant, Mr. Moderate. Well, I'm actually, you didn't <laughs> used to be moderate. Um, but um, yeah, no, what do I you think about, you? I was going to ask you what, you know, so this gets into the way some people looking at JFK killing are labeled forevermore as conspiracy theorists. All right. So let's, so let's what get do you into think this. about that. What is a conspiracy theory? And I looked it up. It's an attempt to explain harmful or tragic events as a result of actions of a small, powerful group. Um, such explanations reject the accepted narrative surrounding these events. Indeed, the official version may be seen as further proof of the conspiracy. So that the two most cited events around which there are conspiracy theories are uh, September 11th. You know, it wasn't the Saudis and, you know, that brought down the government that brought down the towers. It was... Um, you know, our own government and the Kennedy assassination. And it's conspiracy theory has been kind of a, it's become kind of a pejorative word, which is too bad because some conspiracy theories are true. For example, I lean towards the theory that COVID-19 emerged from a lab leak in Wuhan and not from a wet market. Now, I don't, that's not a classic conspiracy theory. I think that's more of a, uh, of a cover-up than uh, than a, an actual i don't think anyone was out trying to create the virus that was going to kill kill a couple million people but you know i think that i, I reject the accepted uh, uh explanation about how that happened yes but, and if you rejected it uh, during the height of covid you would have been banned censored and banned um from social media and you would have been labeled as a as a nut and so I think that is a good example. My view is that it's become a device to silence people, the label conspiracy theory. Some conspiracy theories are crazy, and some, as you said, are true. And it's a way to, conf it's a way to diss somebody without confronting their actual arguments on the merits. Um, where we get into the dangerous territory, as I mentioned, is the two-step process whereby someone is first branded as a conspiracy theorist, and then steps are taken to censor that person and that viewpoint. So whenever I see, especially in news stories, 
the label conspiracy theorist or conspiracy theory in the opening paragraphs of an article, I immediately dismiss that piece. Cut out the tropes and deal with the substance. Well, if there's if there's ever been a conspiracy theory, if you want to call the JFK's assassination a conspiracy theory, it's not hasn't been very uh, well suppressed. Um, you know, you're right. The 38 percent of people only accept the the way it really happened, and um, another and but the rest have been led down the primrose path to believe that that our government is evil. Um, but um, well, the you know the government is made up of people, and there are bad apples everywhere, and so there surely could be bad apples in government. But I think what feeds a lot of these conspiracy theories, and this gets to the movie, and also to the 9/11 example you mentioned, and even the COVID example, is the cover-ups. Even as I said. There, Oswald could have acted totally alone, but there were reasons for institutions to want to hide information and cover up. And if you look at 9-11, you saw extraordinary things being done like Sandy Berger, Bill Clinton's um, foreign policy advisor, um, sneaking into the Library of Con Congress and hiding documents on his person regarding 9-11 and end up getting caught and, and convicted of a, of a crime. I knew Sandy Berger fairly well, a very nice, friendly guy, but there's something that drives people after a major event to want to cover things up. In this case, possible documents that showed that maybe the Clinton administration overlooked signs that 9-11 was going to happen. So I think and that's the assassination stuff too. I think the most compelling case in this movie and in the whole issue about JFK is I think there's no question that a cover-up of sorts was underway by the CIA and the FBI and the Secret Service centered around the relationships they wanted to hide, the prior activities and the mistakes they made. And that feeds conspiracy theories as opposed to transparency. All right. Well, we said we were going to take exactly two minutes to talk about this, and I think we've exceeded that. So, No, our theories on the assassination, our personal theories, I think we did pretty well in the time clock. All right. Let's talk about the movie, though, um, finally. Um, so what did, you, what did you like about the movie? Oh, I'm not going to hide it, Gary. I love this movie. It's one of my favorite films of all time as a political crime thriller, if not a definitive diagnosis of who killed JFK and why. It's tense and exciting throughout the techniques employed uh, to use general historical, genuine historical footage, black and white versus color, interjecting theatrical scenes with live, with, with um, scenes that are flashbacks especially for those of us alive at the time, I just found incredibly evocative and powerful. The acting is generally excellent. The John Williams music is great. The series of vignettes, usually pairing Costner with, as Garrison with one of his key, key sources, uh, are masterclasses in acting and storytelling. Stone called this his Godfather part one. 
He's very proud of it and should be as a film auteur, if not as a historian. You know, um, so we're talking about the things that we liked, <laughs> which were harder for me to um, come up with. I thought the uh, Oscar winning uh, cinematography and editing were very good. I mean, I agree with everything you said about that. Um, yeah, the interesting visual mix of archival material, um, the newly shot color and the black and white historical recreations. I mean, the new edits, um, it was almost hallucinatory. And when it was over, uh, you know, you feel really strung out. So, I mean, as a pure cinematic experience, it was, yeah, it was definitely extraordinary. I don't agree with the premise of this movie at all, uh, but I have to admit it accomplishes what it sets out to do. Stone provides a counter-narrative to the Warren Commission version that seems plausible when it's coming at you. The entire time I was watching the movie, I kept saying to myself, I didn't know that happened. And, you know, was, maybe it did or maybe it didn't. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. I didn't know it happened. The reason is because it didn't. Um, well, and then <laughs> well, the other thing, Gary, I think, look at the effort that was made in the Dealey Plaza reenactment. Stone and his crew spent three weeks there and they had to fight through the Dallas City Council to get permission uh, to do so, they barely won a vote in the city council. It's not exactly something Dallas likes to advertise. Um, and I just think the attention to detail, the care in which they tried to reenact the shooting, how they tried to get all the witnesses uh, in Dealey Plaza in the same places. I think this was a really strong, strong film effort. Nothing was done on the cheap or on shortcuts. No, no, I, I agree. I mean, from a purely cinematic experience, it was, you know, as I said, extraordinary. Um, a lot of work went into it. And it, you know, it affected me in a way I hadn't really expected. You know, I was wavering in my long held belief that Oswald acted alone until I slapped myself in the face and said, snap out of it. Um, <laughs> The bottom but, line, but Gary, I mean, I had to go back and like read right. stuff and like, oh yeah, that's right. That, that not, you know, that didn't happen. So, I mean, yeah, it's from purely propaganda purposes. It was, it was fantastic. I mean, I can, I can see why only 38% of the people believe now. And anyone who watches this movie is going to come away thinking, oh my God. But, well, uh, the only, the only thing, Gary, I think that whether you, whether you believe or not that it was an overt big government conspiracy to kill their own president, which I do not believe, by the way. Um, it, I think where it makes a real educational contribution is in delving into Oswald's background. I mean, even people who basically support Warren would have to admit that there's, this is not just a typical, completely off the grid, loner nut. I mean, there are very strange things that were shown in this movie and that are true. How many people at the height of the Cold War get to walk into a US embassy, turn in their passport, say they're defecting, go to Moscow and get to come back with no consequences and bring their girlfriend with them? I mean, come on. There's just more than meets the eye. I'm, I'm, I'm talking specifically on the Oswald background and bio. So I think there it made a real contribution to at least getting people to take a closer look 
at Oswald. Not conclusive, but a closer look. Yeah, okay. Is there anything about the movie you didn't like? Yeah, I think um I think you know Stone has said that he admires Jim Garrison, considers him something of a hero even though he thought he made mistakes. Um compares him to the fisherman and the old man in the sea who caught the big fish, but by the time he gets ashore, fish has been eaten to the bone. I think Stone falls short in trying to engender a lot of sympathy for Garrison. He's really not that likable. And he really is seen, and I think this is true, he's kind of a runaway prosecutor, the kind of runaway prosecutors, political prosecutors that we condemn today. And the scenes with his wife and kids and the attempts to entrap and belittle him sort of strain for sympathy and drag out the movie. Um, and it's over three hours long. As a and as Garrison is a boss, I sure as hell wouldn't want to work for him, would you? Well, no, he sounds like, well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know that much about Jim Garrison. Um, in the movie, you know, he's Kevin Costner. So you feel... I thought he made Garrison look pretty sympathetic, a leader that you could get behind. So maybe I would like to work for him. Yeah. I just, um, I thought that's where it fell short. What didn't you like? Um, well, I think he went, just went too far. He, by making such wild claims uh, that LBJ was involved and that the JFK, Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy assassinations were all tied together. Um, and then there was not one uh, and not two, but four shooters. The movie hurts its own credibility. Um, after when you're done, it's easy to dismiss some of the harder questions, like whether Os Oswald acted alone, because it's just so he's gone off on these crazy tangents. He's just over overstated his case. So I'm more likely to throw up my hands and say, forget it. I'm sticking to my original conclusions when, you know, it goes to such extremes. Yeah, I agree with that. Basically, I think the I think. Um roping Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy into it, although it was Garrison, but still Garrison's the hero. Um, I thought that was a little deranged. And I think that the to talk about different teams of people and all that uh, leads to the question of how could it have been kept secret. Um, Stone's argument or counter-argument to that, by the way, is that... Um, Actually, the cl clean conspiracy hits, including in the mafia and elsewhere, did have sealed off teams of different people with one team not knowing what the other team was doing and having no knowledge of specifics. So that, that, that's a sort of a weak defense. He would have been on, maybe gotten more followers to his theory of Oswald didn't act alone <clears throat> if he had just stuck to the idea that Stone was the only shooter, but he was backed by others. Yeah, I mean, I think also the thing is, it's been 60 years, right? When this movie was made, it was, they were 30 years into it and it was plausible to say like, well, some of these people, you know, still keeping their secrets, but you know, there's been really nothing new um, that's come out over the last 60 years, except for this, Secret Service guy a couple of months ago who said he found the bullet that shot Kennedy uh, from the the car and put it on the on the uh, 
on the gurney and that's where they found the bullet. No one actually knew how the bullet ended up there. I mean, that's a big, you know, raises new questions, uh, but there's been nothing else. Um, well, the other, the one other thing that came out and it helped support the, um, the Warren theory is the assassination committee in the seventies um, concluded there was most likely more than one gunman based on audio tapes of the, you know, the chatter between Dallas police headquarters and their officers on the scene. And it was later discovered through new technology, sort of like the new technology that gave us the last Beatles song that um, what sounded like a fourth shot was echoes. And it actually discredited a major piece of evidence that the Select Committee on Assassinations had used to conclude that there was probably a conspiracy. So occasionally something new dribbles out like that. So I have, I have one other thing. Uh, it's a small thing that I didn't like, um, but I think there are just too many quotes from Shakespeare and poets and philosophers. Um, you know, David Ferry says, so it's a mystery wrapped in a riddle inside an enigma. That's just kind of pretentious. I mean, that's Churchill. Huh? And it's Churchill. Churchill. I know it's Churchill. (laughs) And Um, that was one of my favorite lines. Okay. Well, what other, how about one may smile and smile and be a villain? That's one of my favorite lines. That was Garrison talking about Shaw. I I don't want to overdo the Seinfeld references here. um, But, but in that boyfriend episode, Elaine and Jerry are talking about Newman and she says, and she's kind of impressed with him for some reason. And she says, maybe he's an enigma wrapped in a riddle. <laughs> um, and Jerry well, Seinfeld says, wait, 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 wait. Jerry Seinfeld says, yeah, he's a mystery wrapped in a Twinkie. <laughs> You're taking Seinfeld so seriously. How about taking seriously the idea that um, Oswald wasn't the spitter? Well, I know. Well, the, the, the analogy breaks down. Yes. Oh, Oswald all of a sudden, sudden. All of a sudden. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't break. It isn't. I mean, it's just, Hernandez is not the spitter. It's Sam McDowell. Yeah, they didn't act alone. Um, all right. Well, what do you think the movie was trying to accomplish? Well, we've got obviously gotten into it, but Stone has said that he wanted to show the Warren Commission report was basically a myth, and he wanted to present or present a counter myth. That was his phrase. He clearly wants to make the case for a conspiracy, though leaving some wiggle room as to who is involved. Uh, Focusing on Garrison as Stone's device for venting his own assassination theories and beliefs, but with just enough distance to maybe disavow after if he got criticized too strongly. And he did. And since our podcast is called The Celluloid President, I think if we're talking about what the film's trying to accomplish, it's important to note that Kennedy barely appears in this film, but it really is hagiography, pure and simple. Stone obviously believes that crises like Vietnam would never have happened had Kennedy lived, and he, Stone, would not have gone to Vietnam to shoot people and get wounded um, so I think there's a very personal uh, purpose in this film for Oliver Stone. 
Yeah, no, I think we're kind of on the same page here. I mean, Oliver Stone, as you mentioned, was a soldier in Vietnam, and he was obviously scarred by the experience. Um, he, he's made three movies about Vietnam, including Platoon, Born on the Fourth of July, and Heaven on Earth. And I think he's trying to find a unified theory of what went wrong with America in the 60s. Um, you and I both think that the JFK assassination had a big impact on the 60s, but I think he goes further um, and posits that Vietnam wouldn't have happened at all if JFK had lived. And and he's just trying to show why. So Yeah, I, I agree. And I also, this is going to support you a little bit. I also think that, um, and I chuckled and chuckled at this, I think there was a great need on the part of a basically left-wing filmmaker to turn a left-wing killing into a right-wing killing. And in other words, think of what Hollywood's view, worldview and viewpoint is, that we were overplaying the communist threat, that, you know, that McCarthyism was all wrong, that and there wasn't a communist under every bed, and that if there was any threat, it was this vicious right-wing extremism lurking about the country, and we see that today. And um, so... What you have to do if you're in, in left-wing Hollywood, you have to take somebody who putatively was a communist, as you said, a left-winger, and try to strain and struggle and, and to prove that he was really a right-winger because that fits the narrative. Well, that's right. I mean, that I agree with that. I mean, you know, if there, if, if to me, if there is a cover-up, and you're right that may, maybe the CIA is covering things up, but I think they probably did not want to start World War III by admitting that, you know, a, a communist killed our president. Um, and um, so they, they turned him into a, um, you know, just sort of a, a lone nutty a lone gun nut so um yeah i mean i'm not, I'm not rejecting completely that there was a there was a cover-up but if it was i think it was they were covering up the left-wing part of it not not not, mm -hmm. not that there was a, a a cia plot to kill the president mm -hmm. all right let's talk about the actors we're starting to see alumni from other movies we've discussed uh, kevin costner played joe o'donnell in 13 days gary oldman um, who is Oswald here, played Churchill in Darkest Hour. Uh, Kevin Bacon played Jack Brennan in Frost Nixon, and Tommy Lee Jones played Thaddeus Stevens in Lincoln. Um, so let's start with Costner. You know, he was a big, huge star in the uh, when he appeared in this movie. Uh, as noted, he was in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and he was in 13 Days, as well as Dances with Wolves, The Bodyguard, Bull Durham, Field of Dreams, The Untouchables. Major, major star. Uh, since then, he's had a career resurgence uh, as a star of Yellowstone, the most popular show on TV. Um, more important, he's only a year younger than we are. And, and he looks more than one year younger than we are. I know, he looks sure. fantastic. And he's paying a lot more alimony and palimony than we are. <laughs> All right. So what do you think? What's your take on him? I, I remembered in previous viewings of this film not being tremendously impressed with his performance. But re-watching it over the past week, my view, I have to say, has changed. I think he was actually very good and really earned his pay. 
during the last long and not easily delivered courtroom speech near the end. What, what was your view of him? Yeah, I think he's actually quite a mediocre actor. Um, but in this movie, he's pretty good. I agree. He's pretty good. I mean, I don't think he's ever going to win an Academy Award. And I wasn't even as bothered by his uh, New Orleans accent as I was by the Boston accent in 13 Days. <laughs> so um, Maybe because I, you know more about Boston I know, accents I, I, than I, New yes, Orleans exactly. accent. I, if you were maybe if you were a Louisiana person um, and you heard him in this movie, you might uh, be pulling your hair out. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones plays Clay Shaw, the defendant. What about him? Well, here's my problem with the acting in the movie generally. To me, it was almost all so good that singling out great performances is really tough. Tommy Lee Jones can play almost anyone in any setting. He was nominated for a supporting actor here as. Clay Shaw, but that list, that long list I rattled off earlier, I thought they were all memorable. And in his scene-by-scene -scene commentary on the film, Stone himself seemed awed and proud of what he was able to assemble. A lot of them worked at lower than their normal salaries. He personally loved the assassination planning party scene, where in one scene you had Tommy Lee Jones Gary Oldman, Joe Pesci, and Kevin Bacon all playing off each other. And Stone actually hinted it was not the easiest scene to film with all those strong-willed, big-ego veteran actors exchanging dialogue. So I just, I was kind of awed by the acting. Even so you in thought the, they were all great. I even thought, in the stars that had small parts. I thought that um, Joe Pesci was terrible, to be honest with you. I thought it was a really poor performance as um, David Ferry. Um, and um, it was just weird. And I mean, I, I guess he's trying to do a New Orleans thing there, but it was he's just- trying to be over the top. I think some of them were, some of them were almost deliberately caricatures like Ed Asner as Guy Bannister. And John you know, Candy, John Candy played. Oh, I a, love that like, scene. I love like that a scene. really hep cat 1950s guy. I mean, he's like almost. I'm surprised, I'm surprised he wasn't snapping his fingers when he was talking. Um, I thought Sissy Spacek was kind of wasted in that role, and her role is uh, his wife. But that happens a lot. Hold on here. How about the history? So, given that I reject almost every premise of the movie, <laughs> it's hard to know where to start. Um, and I'm not going to go through. I didn't have the time to go through and rebut everything because he throws a lot on this. Um, but I'm just going to mention a couple things. The movie shows that Clay Shaw was found not guilty, but fails to admit that the jury deliberated only 45 minutes, which is uh, faster than it takes to eat a bag of beignets. So, in fact, the trial was a farce and uh, not the story of a brand, uh, brave man standing up to power. So um, they don't... You know, they make this trial seem like it's a judgment at Nuremberg or something. And it was really a joke. And everyone knew it was a joke at the time. No, I mean, you know, it, obviously Stone says in his commentary um, <clears throat> that he he sort of claims points for showing the trial and that it that it ended in an acquittal. In other but, words, he well, said Stone uh, was, you can't make it up that it wasn't. Right, an well, Stone was. I mean. Garrison was defeated. And okay, it's a it's a nit that he didn't time the clock and say how quick the 
jury, the jury came in. Um, it's, it's more than a so, nit. I mean, it was just like why? It, the jury reject. There was one vote. They all said unanimously that it was he was he was not guilty, and um, you know he didn't convince anybody. Okay. I also that's think that's what trials that's what trials are for, and um, Stone also thinks that Garrison made a huge tactical error in not bringing Guy Bannister and Ferry in right away when he had worked out his own theory and gave them time to die before they could do a, do a trial. Because if you're going to prove a conspiracy, what you want to do is do what these these people down in Georgia have done with Trump and 16 other defendants is you want to cast as wide a net as possible and then start get, getting people to turn on each other. Um, but, but Garrison couldn't do that um, because he waited too long. And so he was left with basically maybe the one that was more tangentially involved. Anyway, that's just, I'm just sharing you Stone's perspective on maybe why the trial went so bad. And also, and Stone says this repeatedly, um, Garrison had bad witnesses, unreliable, untrustworthy witnesses, and he was denied the opportunity to enter into evidence um, that Clay Shaw had always used the alias Clay Bertrand, that that was, um, he, the judge disallowed that piece of evidence. All these are tactical legal issues um, as to would it would be Garrison's defense as to why he lost the trial. That's what that's what I'm pointing out. Um, I'm sure he has many. Uh, every when you're a conspiracy theorist, um, you always have some uh, other reason to explain why things didn't go your way. Um, so I also, I think um, and I, I don't want to get into the whole stuff about how it shows David Ferry getting murdered by the FBI when he just, you know, he died of, you know, multiple illnesses. Um, but the movie um, wish, uh, the movie whitewashes the way Garrison used homophobia to indict Clay Shaw in the public's imagination. You know, his initial theory of the case was that this is a tight group of homosexuals plotting to kill Kennedy just for the thrill of it, as had been the case with the Leopold and Loeb murders in the 1920s. And you know, he does make it clear that Stone makes it clear that these were um, all gay characters. But he basically, as I said, whitewashes that he was using that as against them, um, that they were gay. Well, he does have um, Sissy Spacek accuse her husband at one point of targeting uh, Clay Shaw because of his homosexuality. So it, it is in there. Um, maybe Stone didn't belabor it because he doesn't believe it. He you know, it's, he doesn't believe that that was a big motivating force on Garrison's part. That's open to debate. and Maybe he landed on a different side of the debate that you did. Yeah, okay. It's not an error necessarily. It's a point of view. <laughs> and we've already talked about this, uh, that he portrays Oswald, uh, a lifelong communist, as a right winger. I mean, I mean. Yeah, know. and I think that's open to some debate. Right. And there's questions worth raising. Yeah. So, again, you're I think you're making legitimate questions about the history. But you are not able, in my view, 
to say, here's what he got wrong. All right. Do you have any issues? Yeah. Accuracy? I, I, well, I think the, the hard thing about analyzing the quote unquote history here is, uh, first of all, are Garrison and Stone the same exact people when it comes to the history? Um, I think Stone tried to leave him, himself a little bit of distance between what Garrison's views are, what his own are. I also think there's a difference between questions of history and questions of crime scene forensics. So the whole issue of whether there were three or four shots, the whole issue of whether the headshot came from the front or the rear, those aren't really his questions for historians. They're questions for f physicists and crime scene forensists and tech and crime scene investigators. And so I think when you're analyzing this film, you have to sort of put it in two or three buckets like that. I do think Stone took a lot of genuine facts and events surrounding the assassination and the investigation, and he arranged them. He arranged them into what he himself called a countermyth, possibilities, likelihoods, rather than flat out proof. And on that score, I think, um, I think he succeeded. Um, he does confess in his, in his online commentary to a few errors. Uh, the phone outages all over the country were not deliberate. It was because everyone was calling each other about the assassination. He also falls back on the defense of, hey, I'm making a movie, I'm making a drama. Of course, there are, in, are invented conversations. Um, and then he said at one point, so if I present 100 facts and you could point to two or five or 10 that are wrong, so what? <laughs> and that, that's sort of his, his attitude. Uh, you know, we usually talk about what our favorite scenes are. I'm sure it was very hard for you um, to narrow down to uh, a handful of scenes that are your favorites, but maybe you can make it a, give it a shot. Yeah, well, I'll, I never thought I would cite as a favorite scene a movie's opening credits, but the whole opening series where you have Eisenhower's military industrial complex speech, you have Kennedy, you have the intermediary episodes of the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis and some of the CIA um, black ops operations in the third world. And then you have Kennedy's American University speech, which has some beautiful phraseology in it. And then you have the arrival in Dallas by Kennedy and the driving through the parade route. And you have real footage interspersed with theatrical footage. And you have the music, that sort of military drumming, and it's just pounding away with a sense of dread up to this inexorable conclusion. The Hertz clock on top of the book depository, because we all know 1230 exactly was the, you know, the terrible moment. Just the whole buildup to that, I thought was just, you know, dramatic, a sense of dread, a sense of helplessness on the part of me, the viewer. I thought it was awesome filmmaking. Okay, I thought the I agreed on the montage at the beginning was, you know, a, a classic case of cutting and um, yeah, it was it was great. It was very well done. What about um, anything else? 
Well, I do think that the I have others. I you know I like the John Candy scene, as I mentioned, and I would note that Candy presented a pretty good line of rebuttal to Garrison when he said that um, there was no conspiracy. He said Candy said it was Oswald. If if there was a conspiracy, why didn't his brother prosecute it as attorney general? Right. And I thought that was a good question because Bobby was still attorney general and was until he ran for Senate. And I like the scene. It wasn't my favorite scene, but the scene where Bill Broussard presented alternative theories, uh, more limited conspiracy theories, like it was a mafia hit or something like that, and walked out of Garrison, um, Garrison's staff, and then Garrison ends up having a confrontation with another staff member and fires him. Um, I thought that was good because it showed that Garrison was going too far and presented alternative theories. I don't really have a lot of favorite scenes, but I thought the two most absorbing scenes uh, were the were two really long monologues. Um, the first by Donald Sutherland as Mr. X, when he laid out the CIA conspiracy, CIA conspiracy, um, and also the closing statement by Kevin Costner um, to the jury. Both those were very powerful and very effective scenes. Uh, after, you know, it took me a few days to deprogram myself after watching those scenes. <laughs> oh. well, you, know what, you know what Stone said about that? He, um, apparently the film Z was something of a model for him. And he said what Z did was it showed a crime over and over again until people started looking at it in a new way. And that's sort of what he did in the courtroom scene at the end, showing a scene over and over, a crime over and over again. You know, I have to say, too, I don't think that I've ever seen the Zapruder film which seems impossible, I guess. Uh, I've seen clips here and there, but I haven't seen it presented this way. So I appreciated um, the opportunity to, to really look at it closely like that. Um, What's interesting is that the Zapruder film had not been made public yet by the time of this trial. So basically no one had seen it. Yeah. And the people in the courtroom were some of the first non-official people to see it. It wasn't shown uh, to an American wide audience till 1975. And Stone, and I'm not sure I don't subscribe to this necessarily, the, you know, the Stone said in his commentary, I've shot people <laughs> and I've watched people getting shot. And I'm telling you, it did not come from the rear that headshot. Now, you know, I know other very skilled people have said otherwise, but I'm just telling you what Stone said. No, I know. He I know. You know, there are a lot of really bizarre scenes in this movie, I guess, that adds to the sort of hallucinatory effect. But for me, one of the, one of the, the top most bizarre uh, scenes was uh, on the night that uh, Robert Kennedy's assassinated and Garrison wakes his wife up to tell her the news and she says, uh, you were right all along um, without, you know, without hearing anything. She just, and anyway, that doesn't make sense. Uh, but regardless, the next thing you know, they're having sex, which is not exactly the first thing I would do after hearing that mm -hmm. a political leader had been murdered. 
you know <laughs> i hadn't i hadn't focused on that that's that is amazing um yeah. you know they they show at the end um you know the happy couple walking out of the courthouse with their son jasper who by the way was played by oliver stone's real son that kid they show them walking out arm in arm um they divorce soon after the trial and that's not pointed out but why well, would you no because, it does it, that's not right but it does you know show you that, that he's trying to whitewash a lot of things here yeah uh, okay uh let's talk about some favorite lines my one of my favorites is uh the assistant da uh who's talking about the difficulty of t uh, determining the truth he says this is louisiana chief i mean how do you know who your daddy is because your mom told you so i thought that was great that was great you got one well i liked he didn't like pesci i thought he was deliberately over the top and um when he he had his first interview literally on the weekend of, on assassination weekend and he was you know, trying to spin his story about, you know, he went ice skating in Texas <laughs> and that's why he went, you know, and all that, which is all true from my reading. And he, they couldn't get any bag, any geese because that was a wise bunch of birds. <laughs> and then when Garrison says, I find your story simply unbelievable, he, scratch, he scratches his wig and says, really, what part? <laughs> I just thought that was that was hilarious. He was meant to be something of a comedic figure. And then I did like, I can't remember it verbatim, but at the end, during the trial, when Garrison was wrapping up his case, and he said, you know, if you can't, and if you can't see how the magic bullet would work, then you have to conclude there was a fourth shot. And if you conclude there was a fourth shot, then there had to be a second gunman, and then therefore there had to be a conspiracy. I thought that was like, as you, it was a propagandistic way to rope people into this syllogism. You know, if you believe that, then you have to believe the second thing. And if you believe the second thing, you have to believe the third thing. And that's how he tried to rope people in. Um, I thought. Do you have any others? Yeah, Jim Garrison saying uh, that something was about as subtle as a cockroach crawling across a white rug. Um, <laughs> I had, I had, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I guess I got one more. Um, John Candy, Kennedy's as dead as that crab meat. The government's alive and breathing. You're going to line up with a dead man, Jimbo? I thought that was great. I just like that whole, I just like that whole scene, the close-ups of Candy's sweating face and... <laughs> Wearing sunglasses throughout the meal. I mean, some of this was comedic. I'm, I'm serious. Um, even though it was a grim subject. My last favorite line was uh, one of Sutherland's um, during his monologue in Washington, where he says, the organizing principle of any society is for war. The authority of the state over its people resides in its war powers. And I think that, yes, it's overinflated. But I think that is so true if you think of it in a broader context. If you think of the way that public officials today at all levels can in invoke emergency powers because the public safety is threatened, whether it's from terrorists, whether it's from a snowstorm, whether it's from a disease, and they use that, 
those declarations to basically, you know, assume dictatorial powers to tell people they can't leave their homes. So, and, and if you look at the history of the aftermath of 9-11, a lot of the domestic spying and surveillance has gone so far beyond what its initial purpose was. And to rebut, to, to rebut um, Stone on one thing, you know, when he says in Sutherland, when they say they needed the Vietnam War because look at all the helicopters they could, Bell could produce and make money. Wrong. You don't need a war to inflate the defense budget. We will have a bloated and massive defense budget, whether there's a war or not. And if we don't have wars, we'll find wars to send the arms too. I don't think the arms manufacturers need to kill a president to start a war. Well, the other thing too is this whole idea about the arms industry being the most important industry in America is like completely ridiculous. I mean, I didn't look it up, but it's very clear. Medical industry is much bigger. Um, education industry. I mean, is the arms manufacturers big tech? Big, big tech. tech. Yeah, I mean, arms manufacturers are just three or four companies, and you know they're big companies, but they're not in the top fifty or anything. I mean, there's multiple industries that are much more important than defense. So it's just yeah, the one thing. I, the one thing I don't. Yeah, I don't buy money as a motivator for some of these things. I do buy ideology sure. and, and a quest for power um, as, mo as motivating some of these things. All right. Um, we just talk about what the, um, you know, how this movie is still relevant or not relevant and how it compares with politics today. Well, I think that um, the movie shaped and was shaped by uh, a growing distrust in the government and institutions of authority. Um, it's audacious to think that elements within storied organizations like the CIA and FBI would go so far as to participate in the killing of a president. And I don't really buy into that. I do buy into the possibility there could have been some rogue outlying elements, rogue individuals that could have gotten involved with that. But when you look at some of the more recent conduct, of the security state, um, which has grown in size and power many times over since the 60s, it does make you wonder. Um, and I, I think there's relevance in that there's a lot of reason to demand more transparency, to demand more scrutiny, and frankly, to rein in some of these institutions, unless you are totally satisfied, for example, with the way the FBI handled itself in the aftermath of the 2016 election. Um, so that's sort of my view on the relevance. Yeah, I think it's very relevant um, because our country is now suffused with people who believe that every time something happens that they don't like, there's a conspiracy behind it. I think this is kind of an immature attitude, to be honest with you, that uh, when things go wrong, it's someone's fault, other than just that it, like there's either an accident or it's a coincidence or any of that stuff, but uh, the movie um, by uh, publicizing the biggest conspiracy theory of the 20th century dramatically accelerated that trend. It used to be that only weirdos believed in conspiracy theories, but now it's mainstream. Um, both the right and the left are, are guilty of this. Uh, just look at the 2020 election. 
Half the country believes there was a conspiracy by the Democrats to steal the election with corrupt voting machines. And the other half believes there was a conspiracy to foment an insurrection on January 6th. So basically anyone who uses the phrases stop the steal or the January 6th insurrection is a conspiracy theorist. And it's just everywhere now. And um, so this movie kind of um, points to one of the reasons that we have, you know, everyone believes this stuff. Do you think that... um... A film like this is, therefore, do you think it's damaging to the country and to the society? Yes. To sort of on, on a big platform. To... I, I actually do. I think, the, I think this country would be a lot better off if this movie had never been made. But do you spread that sense of blame to the general portrayal of our government and of corporations in Hollywood? Because... We focused on this movie because it's reputedly about a specific event in history. But think about all of the movies and shows and the way they portray presidents. Think about 24, that series. How do, how were presidents and our government portrayed there? Think about House of Cards. Think about how corporations and big businesses portrayed, even in shows that we've liked in the past, like Dallas. So, I mean, isn't, is it, if you're going to blame JFK as a movie, and I, I thought you might, which is why I asked the question, isn't it a much wider issue, broader issue? Well, Hollywood is terrible in the way they uh, treat power. Um, I agree. The, the, the difference is in the way this is actually the worst one is because it was such a big event and um, a lot of these movies, a lot of these shows that you're talking about are um, fiction. And we can all say, oh, yeah, that's just fiction. In this case, he's trying to make the case. He's trying to prove the point that this has actually happened. And, um, you know, I just think it feeds into a cynicism that is unwarranted. It's one thing to be cynical about human nature in general, um, but to go over the top um, like this. Uh, so, all right. Could the movie be made today? Uh, yes, but um, I think since the Hollywood left now has a newfound romance with the likes of the FBI and CIA, um, their their role would be minimized, the idea of the FBI and CIA. Uh, the reputed right-wing extremist role would be maximized. Um, but I don't think anyone would dare remake this film because this one is so well done from a cinematic standpoint. Yeah, well, the, I think the question really is not if you'd remake it, but if if this had, movie hadn't been made then, could it be made now? And I think, yes, I agree. Um, everyone loves conspiracies, and, um, um, and they do kind of remake this periodically. Documentaries playing all the time, and um, so, yeah, the fascination is still there. Uh, who'd you recommend the movie to? Well, Kennedy assassination buffs. On whatever side they sit, um, those who like to be challenged by alternative theories of history, which obviously doesn't include you, um, those who want to see very well done depictions of a very turbulent time in our history, whether you personally lived through it or not, uh, those who enjoy a, a crime thriller, who done it and why done it, with a cast of uh, familiar faces. So I would recommend this movie um, be shown to people who want to understand the mindset of obsessive conspiracy theorists. 
just to understand how their minds work and why they are so susceptible to this kind of theory. So that's who I'd have have watch it. Maybe psychiatrists or something like that. <laughs> um, uh, let's see. If you were a high school teacher, would you assign this movie? Uh, no, it's too profane and graphic for that. Um, I might show it to college students and get everyone debating uh, about things. And some of the ideology implicit in this film uh, fits the ideology of our college campuses to a T. Yeah. I think if you want to, show, well, of course, you would not show it to a high school uh, uh, class. Um, if you wanted to show it in college, I think you would have to be paired with like some actual scholarly books like Case Closed, um, which I guess you probably never read. The, some of the debunking um, and maybe 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 you can take it on, uh, you know, show them two different sides, mm -hmm. you know, a conspiracy thing on one side and the and uh case closed on the other um and but yeah you could do it that way all right um i'm gonna give my grade so i give i i will give a concede i would give it an a for the filmmaking and i would give it an f for the history so <laughs> where you f well i give it possible. i give it an a pure and simple and um by way of summing up i i don't do this very often if at all but i'd quote the uh Richard Corliss review in Time Magazine back at the time. And he said, whatever one's suspicions about its use or abuse of the evidence, JFK is a knockout, part history book, part comic book. The movie rushes toward judgment for three breathless hours, lassoing facts and factoids by the thousands, then bundling them together in a, into an incendiary device that would frag any viewer's complacency. Stone's picture is in both meanings of the word sensational. It's tip-top tabloid journalism. In its bravura and breadth, JFK is seditiously enthralling in its craft, wonderfully complex. Okay, so that's a wrap on another episode of The Celluloid President. As always, uh, please subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or any other podcast service. If any of you have any suggestions of movies we should discuss, um, let me know. Uh, you can email me at garyholm 76 at gmail and um, at Twitter at, uh, at Gary Holmes. Um, so speaking of uh, movies we should discuss next, um, Jim, why don't you tell us what we're going to do? Well, how about another Nixon movie? I need a fix. <laughs> you um, really are addicted. <laughs> All the President's Men from 1976, starring Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman as Woodward and Bernstein, the junior reporters who reputedly broke open the Watergate scandal. It's going to be very strange to rewatch a film in which the mainstream media are actually heroes. Times yeah, now that never happens. Never happens. Okay. Times have changed. Times have changed. All right. So um, we'll see you next time, Jim. All right. Take care. Ta-ta. If I answer that question you keep asking, if I give you the name of the big enchilada, you know, then it's Bon Voyage Dino. I mean like poignant. I mean like a bullet in my head, you dig? Does that help you see my problem a little better? I saw a flash of light in the bushes, and I 
and then shots rang out. The whole cloak and dagger stuff, you know. They call it Operation Mongoose. It's gonna be okay, Dave. You just talk to us on the record and we'll protect you. And I guarantee it. You were so naive.